ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at what you would have us to learn from this. And we thank you for all that you love us and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 3. I'm going to read from the beginning of, the, of this ch uh, chapter because we're going to get context even though we're going to start at verse 11. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I have said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it would, and you hear it, the sound thereof, and you cannot tell where it came, where it comes, and where it goes. So it is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him and said, Are you a master of Israel, or a teacher of Israel, and know not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that which we do know, and testify that we have seen, and you have received not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his Son into the world to not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This And this is the condemn, condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their heart or their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. All right, so we're going to start looking here. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. We covered that last week. Uh, two different opinions on why he came tonight. You know, he was either afraid to be seen with Jesus or he just was such a busy man that he couldn't get to Jesus any time earlier. Either one doesn't matter. <laughs> I've heard sermons on both directions. Uh, and Jesus starts giving him what he considers simple things. <laughs> you must be born again uh, and on all of these. And then it, you know, in verse 10 he goes, uh, are you a master of Israel and you do not know these things or a teacher of Israel? All right, so we talked a lot about these things, and we're going to take it up in verse 11. Uh, verily, verily, or truly, truly, amen, amen, let it be so, you know, is what it's... I say unto you, we speak that which we know, and testify that which we have seen, and you receive not our, witnesses, our witness. Jesus says, I'm telling you what I have seen, and what I know, and you're not accepting my testimony. And this is something that we all have experienced when we go and witness to somebody. We tell them what we know about God and our experience with God. And more often than not, they're going, well, that's, that's okay for you. Uh, you know, what, what's good for you is good for you, and I don't care about it. I don't, I don't believe it. Nicodemus is being chewed out by Jesus, kind of. You know, I've given you the testimony of the things I know, and you're still not accepting what you're told. And this is... In one sense, it kind of makes sense. Nicodemus is an instructor of, of the people. He's a Pharisee. He's, and we know that, you know, we, we traced him through the Sanhedrin, that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's one of those that thinks he's smart. He knows the Bible, uh, or at least the scriptures they had at that time. So basically he's going, Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. And Jesus says, I'm telling you simple things and you're not accepting what I say about it. And this is, this is what he says, and it says in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And, you know, 
I kind of take that for, you know, as I'm looking at that, I'm going, okay, he's talked about being born again, being born of the flesh and, 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 and water and the spirit. And Jesus calls those earthly things. I wonder when I read this, what would Jesus have considered to be heavenly things to tell, tell, tell Nicodemus? Like, it kind of makes me wonder because these first ones, yeah, they're, they're a little understandable. He's using you know, world, the world's way of thinking and, and bringing things out. And I kind of wonder what would a heavenly topic have been with him. And you know, this is one thing about the scriptures. God is using earthly act, you know, descriptions to be able to describe himself and the heavenly, the heavenly things. And our language is very limited in being able to describe anything spiritual. And we know that already. It's, you know, it's so easy for us to not fully understand the spiritual because it is so far above anything that we can communicate in by words. And we struggle with that communication of it. Uh, we look at John's description in the book of Revelation, the description of heaven. And I'm sure that the gates are not pearls and the, and the, and, and the walls made out of uh, jasper and emeralds and those type of things and, and gold is probably not what the streets are but they were the only words he could use to describe what he saw and you know we think about this a lot you know what will heaven really be like it's going to be so much beyond anything that we can even comprehend you know the few testimonies I hear about heaven that I actually believe are those that say I can't even describe what I saw, heard, tasted, uh, you know, and I can't even describe it to you. And those ones I take a little more, you know, okay, something happened to this person that I don't know what it was, but I'm more willing to accept it. Uh, Paul, you know, when he gave his description of having gone into the third heaven, he goes, it's not even lawful for man to say what, what was seen. All right, so it was so far above that he couldn't even begin to bring it to a description. And I think this is very important on it. But Jesus says, you know, if I'm telling you earthly things and you can't understand it, how are you going to be able to understand spiritual things? And this is something even for us, the longer we walk with God, the more we serve him, the more we start to understand the spiritual things. And even then we still don't understand spiritual things. Even, you know, the Holy Spirit lives in us so that we can start to understand because we are indwelled by God so we can begin to understand spiritual things but we'll never fully understand spiritual things because we have great limitation we touch we smell we hear uh, we taste and if we can't you know do our senses can't find out those things it's hard for us to understand which is why there's a real element of faith to anything spiritual because we can say here it is I've experienced this 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 I have I have done this, I have seen this, but we really can't get to the place where I can say, all right, here's heaven, it's in my hand. I know exactly what it look, you know, feels like. Uh, I, I just saw a glimpse of it. I know exactly what it looks like. We'll never know all of that. And even if we had an experience of heaven, we'll have to describe it in earthly terms, and we still could not be able to describe what it is that we saw, felt, tasted. Because I hear you hear it all the time. Well, there were smells that I just can't even begin to tell you they were like what we have here but a hundred times greater than what we have I heard sounds that were you know, and those are the descriptions you hear on the ones that I will actually accept having any kind of real validity as, of going to heaven he said Jesus is telling him I've told you about earthly things and you're not understanding he goes verse 13 and no man has ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven even the son of man which is in heaven so basically he says, nobody's gone up and come back is what he's basically saying. Nobody's gone up and come back to tell you what heaven is like. Paul is going to have that experience and come back and say, I can't tell you what I saw. Uh, John sees the vision and we, he doesn't technically see heaven. He sees a vision of heaven of some sort. And he gives us a description of what he saw in his vision. But Jesus is saying, no one's gone up there and come back to tell you what it's like. And he says, but... I, uh, the son of man, has come down. He can tell you what it's like as best he can in English, in, in, in English, yeah, in wor words of this world. And so he's kind of, you know, this is his 
his uh, statement on, on this. And now he's going to pivot and he's going to say, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, the question I have for us is, do we know what story he's referring to? All right, in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, the children of Israel have been disobeying God again, as usual. And God sends in serpents that bite them and bring great pain and death to them when they, when they bite. Moses goes to God and says, what am I going to do? God tells him to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, set it up in the middle of the, of the congregation, and anybody who just looks at the bronze serpent will be healed of their, of their bite. So when they got bit, all they had to do was go to where this pole was, look up at the serpent, and they would be healed. If they didn't, they died. <laughs> if they did, they lived. Now this is, think about the faith this takes. You have just been bit by a poisonous snake. You have seen other people or heard about other people who have died because they were bitten by this snake. And you were to go to the center of, of the community and go look at a, at a bronze serpent on a pole and get healed. How much faith does that take? Quite a bit. Now, after certain people got healed, it, shouldn't take, it should take less and less faith for each one, you know, because the stories are going to get out. Hey, I looked at that serpent, and, and I'm okay. <laughs> it makes sense to try it no matter what. Uh, but this is a story that Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Nicodemus is going to know this. He's a, he's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees uh, had memorized the first five books of the Bible, so this story would have been something that Nicodemus... Uh, had studied, known about. It's not going to know it necessarily as a uh, Messianic uh, description because I don't believe that they saw that as a Messianic description until Jesus uses it as a Messianic description. And he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This is actually his first statement that he's going to die. All right, that, that has been recorded in John. He's going to go and be lifted up and be presented as the way for them to be forgiven and healed. So this is a, a Messianic statement and saying that he's going to die. Um, what does Messianic mean? Uh, related to the Messiah. It means that it's uh, something that speaks about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And we have plenty of them. Uh, Psalm 22 is a Messianic scripture. Isaiah 53 uh, is Messianic scripture. It defines the Messiah and, the, and what he was going to do. Huh? Uh, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. There's a lot more. Those are the two I know off the top of my head uh, at this moment. So he says that the Son of Man needs to be lifted up so that people could be healed. And, and it doesn't say so they could be healed, but because... Nicodemus knows the story. He knows exactly what Jesus is saying. The sick people are going to go look at the serpent being lifted up. So he understands that sick people need to look at the Son of Man being raised up. Now, he may or may not understand that Jesus is referring to the sickness of sin at this point. But Jesus is going to explain that as he goes, goes further into this section here. Yeah. The serpent will be lifted, had to be lifted up. So he, would, he had to be lifted up, and why are you going to be lifted up is that bringing in death. Because, the, uh, let's, let's finish the story. The serpent was on a pole uh, that was actually a, more of a cross, and it was all, if you've ever seen the medical insignia, that's, yeah, that's, that's the, where that symbol comes from, that that serpent was twisted around that, that pole. And he's going to recognize the idea that the serpent represents sin and all that other, other stuff that would have been been up there. So sin has been, been killed. Verse 15, and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Alright, so we all know verse 16, we didn't realize that 15 said almost the same I exact know, I, thing. I noticed that. <laughs> I've never that it's slightly different word, but it, it, it is the same thing. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, should not uh, come to an end but have eternal life. 
Now, this goes in context. He said that you must be born again. Now he's going, here is how you are born again. You're going to look to the, look to the, ser- the, the serpent being raised up on the pole or the son of man being raised up on the pole, and that will give you eternal life. And so this is where he's at with this as he's going forward. This is something that Nicodemus as a teacher is going to understand more of than we tend to understand when we first read it. And then it goes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus intensifies it. Basically he's using Jewish poetry on, on him uh, called a simile, using the same thing twice. All right, And now he's adding to it. For God so loved the world. The entire world is what Jesus is referring to. Nicodemus is going to be shocked by that statement that God, number one, loves the world because the Jews do not understand at this point in time that God loves the world. They go, they barely believe that he loves them. Uh, Even though he's called them, they, they don't usually think of God loving them. He's made promises to them. They offer their sacrifices and they feel that that God is almost obligated because they offered their sacrifices. The Jews are very heavily into their works and their rituals. And if we do these works and rituals, then God is obligated to fulfill his side of, of the bargain to us. And they don't really think of God as a loving God. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says, Our Father, which art in heaven... And that is a foreign statement to them as well. They thought of him as God Almighty, you know, the God of hosts, but they never really thought of him as a father or somebody that loved them. And even for us as Christians, we sometimes struggle with this idea that God loves us. And if we're not in a relationship with God, they don't understand love at all. And I've met many Christians who feel they got to earn God's love. I got to do a lot of stuff so I can earn earn my salvation, keep my salvation, uh, make God obligated to, to, light, you know, to care for me because I'm going to do as much as I can. So when Jesus says, for God so loved the world, Nicodemus is probably thinking, hold it, this does not really compute with my understanding of God. And so he's going to go there and go that he gave his only begotten son, his only one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this word for belief is be persuaded of. And I've said this many times, it's not just believing that Jesus lived, it's not just believing that he went to the cross, but being persuaded that he is God's son that went to the cross and became sin on the cross for us to be saved. And it's much more than just saying, yeah, I believe. <laughs> you know, I, be- I believe this is true. And so it's a very deep, deep belief in this. And he's being told that you know, God offered. And he gave his only begotten son. So this is a, given to a man who understands sacrificial giving. And he would have been probably thinking of the story of Abraham being sent to offer Isaac and God delivered Isaac but if you remember that what what did Abraham say to Isaac God will provide his lamb not a lamb but his lamb so he was given a prophetic statement even in that statement that God would provide his lamb or himself a lamb I think is literally what it says and here Jesus is using this story that God is going to give his son, which is already struggling for, for him to believe because he doesn't understand that there's a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even though the scriptures is full of the examples of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity idea has not really been brought out that much in, in, to them. And now he's getting, okay, God has a son, and he's going to struggle this is one of the things Paul brings out in many of his epistles how God said this is my son and my son will you know is will sit at my right you know, on the right side and his foot and the earth will be his footstool there's all kinds of references to him but they never really put it together as God would become flesh and that was something that really 
And it would not make sense to us if it wasn't in the past and we had all the stories about it becoming true and the fulfillment of the, of the various prophecies. Uh, and this is the thing, you know, one of the reasons that I, I love studying eschatology but don't like studying eschatology or in, day, in times is because we're going to make the same mistakes on eschatology that the Jews made with Jesus coming on the first coming, thinking they knew everything and then finding out that they didn't know a whole lot. And I know that there's pl plenty in, in the end time studies that we look at and go on, well, okay, didn't quite happen the way we thought it was going to happen. Now, we know certain things. There'll be a rapture. There'll, there'll be a seven years of tribulation. I mean, we know certain things, but we don't know how quick they ha all happen with each other. You know, is the rapture right before the seven, day, seven years, or is it a couple years before the seven years? We don't know fully. It makes sense that the rapture will trigger the, the tribulation and the rise of the Antichrist because when millions of people disappear from this world, you, you think uh, that we've had some crazy uh, issues coming up. When millions of people disappear, can you imagine how much craziness will be going on in this world in panic? Uh, looking for somebody who can explain it and make sense out of it and take care of what's going on because all of a sudden just a lot of people disappear. We think that COVID brought a panic, take millions of people out of the out of the out of the world at one time, and not having bodies to find, not having you know maybe even having stories of people just disappearing. Who knows? You know who knows what the, what what will happen from that? The accidents, the car wrecks, how many leaders are going to be Christians that just disappear, uh, and all these different things, and the chaos that's going to go on. And after that, the Antichrist should rise very quickly from that chaos to solve the world's problems uh, and end up facing seven years of tribulation. But that's speculation because there's nothing that says in the scripture that the rapture is going to happen and then the tribulation starts right that moment. All right, And so we need to be able to understand there may be things that we don't understand. There could still be a great revival even though I don't know how it could be, how we could have a great revival when I look around and see all the sin that's rampant and the man doing what's right in their own eyes and and all of that i think we're definitely at the end of days but you know what god could say i'm going to have one more revival before this i don't see that coming but i'm not god and i don't know how he could make you know what he wants to do with this so jesus is telling him these things that don't make sense to him god loving the world does not make sense to him uh, that he's going to give his son as a sacrifice doesn't make sense to him. And that these are needed to get that everlasting life, that not perish and have everlasting life. And so this is something that is new to Nicodemus's thought processes. I don't have to go to the sacrifice, this offering, but God is going to provide an offering so that I can be, receive everlasting life and be sure of it. Because notice that his statement isn't that they might have everlasting life, that they could have everlasting life, but that they would not perish and have everlasting life. So God is telling Nicodemus, you know, you can be guaranteed of your relationship with God through this sacrifice. Now, as far as Nicodemus is concerned, he has to go to the temple three times a year to offer the, the big sacrifices, and when you sin, you're going to offer a sin, a burnt offering, and you've got all these other offerings that you can offer. And the more offerings you do, the better off, the more God likes you, and the more obligated He's going to be to take you to heaven. All right. So now He's getting an entirely new doctrine to have to consider. Okay, God doesn't hate us. He's not angry at us all the time. He loves us. He's going to offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice, if I believe in that sacrifice, will lead to everlasting life. So this is what Nicodemus is being given. Here's a whole new way of thinking. Now the hard thing about giving somebody a new way of thinking, and I've seen it over and over in my lifetime, is you have to decide, am I going to believe the new way of thinking and forget my old way of thinking, which is what we're supposed to do, but what most people do, they try to synthesize the two and put the two together and say, okay, I, I can't think that everything I learned in the past is wrong. And you try to mix the two together and end up with, depending on which one you add mostly to it, 
a quarter truth, a quarter of truth, half truth, three quarters of a truth, seven eighths of a truth. You know, but no matter how you mix it, you still have lies, a lie in, in that mixture. And this is the hardest thing, and I've seen it when people grow up in church and they've been taught wrong over the years to be able to just say, all right, what I have learned in the past was wrong. This is what scripture says, and I'm going to believe it. Nicodemus is now given an option. Are you going to believe in your works system that you've always believed in for however long? We we know he has to be over 30, and 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 he says you're a master of, you know, of Israel, which probably means he's in his you know, late 30s, early 40s, or 50s. He's going to have to say, all right, everything I believe about God is contrary to what that one verse says. And am I going to believe what this man says, who I just said is from God? Am I going to believe him? Or am I going to believe all the stuff that I've believed all my life? This is a dilemma for him, more than we can even imagine unless you've gone through this kind of thing, you know, uh, in your lifetime. And I've had several cases where I've come across scripture and said, okay, this is what I've always believed, but this is what it seems to be saying. And I have to struggle with what I'm reading in the Bible and saying, did I read it correctly? Am I understanding it correctly? And once I say, yes, I'm understanding it correctly, I have to throw away what I've, what I've believed in the past and start believing the new material, that the new thing that God has shown me. And all of us are going to go through that at some point in our time with the Bible when we read it and all of a sudden going, whoa, this isn't what I've always believed. And struggle with, what am I going to believe? Uh, When we did the Truth Project, uh, Dale Tackett said that we were cocoons where, you know, something where you go in and you get metamorphed into something new coming out. And that's the way it's supposed to be. I struggle, I fight, I I sit there and, and wrestle with it and then, okay, Yes, God's word is true. And the more we believe God's word is true, the better off we are. And I've come to the conclusion, if God says it, I need to change and match what it says. But I do spend some time making sure that I'm understanding what it says in the scripture. Because I don't want to get lost down some other path because I misunderstood something. So this gets us into that whole wrestling with truth and non-truth. Question, Billy? Who? Who? T-A-C-K-E-T-T. Oh, it's Tackett. Tackett. One more time. T-A-C-K-E-T-T. All right. Uh, Then he goes in verse 17, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved or rescued. So Jesus came and he's telling Telling again, Nicodemus' thought process is God is a God of anger and rules and condemnation. And so Jesus is telling him, the Son of Man did not come in to condemn. Again, Nicodemus' whole way of thinking is being shaken up, uh, shook up at this point. He's thinking God is, and I've described it, God is up there with his hammer, lightning bolts, however you want to look at it, waiting for us to do wrong. This is Nicodemus's viewpoint of God. God is just waiting for us to do something wrong so that he can send plagues and destruction and, and problems on us. Because that, that would have been how he read the Old Testament. He's not looking at all the time God blessed them and <laughs> delivered them. They oftentimes looked at God in a very negative light. And how many of us as Christians kind of tend to think the same thing? Uh, if I don't live just right, I might as well not pray because God's not going to listen to me and give me anything because I'm not, you know, I'm not living in a way to get him to honor me. Lots of people think that way. Even, even when we know better, we can get into that. It strikes me every once in a while. I can't ask God. I haven't been living right. You know, you know, and that's not the right attitude toward this. And this is where God is talking to Nicodemus and saying, I'm not here to condemn. I'm here to save the world, to rescue the world, the world lost in sin, headed for hell. And I'm here to save. And again, it goes back to that love. This is a whole new way of thinking for Nicodemus. 
And for many Christians, it's a whole new way of thinking when they, when they really process this. God is not up there hating us. He's not up there waiting for us to, to slip up and fall. Matter of fact, it tells us that his hands are underneath us when we fall. And that's in the Old Testament. That's the, the, the whole problem is the way the Jews thought was not even correct from their own scriptures. And Jesus is bringing these things to him. And Nicodemus probably is going to remember some of these other stories when he says God came to love. You know, we can go back to the very first story, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. And what did God do? He didn't strike them dead right that moment. He offered a sacrifice to shed the blood of the animal and clothe them with skin to show them that he loved them in spite of their sin. And we go through the scriptures, all through the scriptures, where God shows his love to his people and not his condemnation. Yes, when they disobeyed and continued to disobey, he would bring in judgment and, you know, one of the problems we as human beings have is how often do we look at the negative of things and not look at positive? You know, it's so easy to look at the negative and say, oh, things are so bad, so, so poor, and avoid the positive. And I do the same thing. I tend to be more positive than negative, but I, I still sometimes get wrapped up in the negative. And I know lots of people who never have anything positive to say in their life. They're, they're draining. <laughs> uh, uh, and I usually will tell them, you know, I have one thing to say is I choose to, I choose to have a good day. I choose to trust God and have a good day, whichever, however I'm going to say at that time. But I do truly believe that our life and whether we have a good time or not good time is, is a choice that we can make. And why? Because I've watched other people in the scriptures make those choices and say, I'm going to choose that God is in charge. And because I choose that he's in charge, he's sending only what's going to be good for me in the long run. And I'm just going to enjoy and not be brought down as much as possible. I am human. There are many times when I look and I get depressed just like everybody else. But I do tend to look at, God, you're in charge. You have a plan. And it does make things a whole lot easier and, and to live and say, God, you're in charge. I'm just going to trust that you've got something good for this. And I'm going to find, you're going to show me what's good, and I'm going to see how you're going to work this out. And when you start that way, you know, I don't, and I don't think it's positive thinking, but there is part of the positive thinking in it. But it's, my trust isn't in my positive thoughts. It, my trust is in God who is going to keep me. And that's the most important thing that we can do. Uh, then he says, I came not to condemn, but eight, verse 18, he that believes not on him is not he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the Son of the only begotten Son of God. So this statement is quite interesting because he says, he that believes on him is not condemned, is not sent to judgment. And this is something that's very interesting because when you believe there is no condemnation. How did Paul put it in Romans? He says, there, there now therefore is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. We need to really grab hold of that. When we are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Now we struggle with that because we know that we sin. We know that we do wrong. We know that we deserve much more than God's giving us. But Jesus said, if you believe in the Son, there, you are not condemned. But now he says the other side of that is he that believes not is condemned already. What does that mean? We stand condemned before we come to Christ. And we say it's simple. We are born sinners. We are born with sin. There is no one that has not sinned because we are born sinners. And this is, this is the hard part. The world does not understand this. You know, if you talk to the world, they go, well, if we just tap into our inner goodness, everything is going to be great. Only problem is there's no such thing as inner goodness. All right? You may have yourself disciplined enough to appear good, but deep down in everyone's heart, as Jeremiah tells us, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? We are wicked. We may hide it better. Some people may hide it better than others. Some people may you know, seem to be because of their discipline, but everybody has a very deep, wicked heart. 
And when people will be honest and you ask them, if you thought you could absolutely get away with it and nobody would know, what would you do? And most everybody would do just about anything if they said there was no way that I'd ever get caught because they're immediately going to think about that person they'd like to get rid of their life. You know, if, if I knew that there was no way I'd ever get caught, that person wouldn't be on this walk in this world anymore. If they knew that there was no way that I could get caught, that house up there would be my, you know, that house on the top of the hill would be my house. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> and, you know, and it's a true statement because deep down inside, we are not good. Why? Because the sin nature is, comes from the fall of Adam and Eve. We are born sinners. We sin because we are sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we already have that sinning nature in us. And it is by our nature that we will sin. Which is why I always say the statement, you know, I am never surprised when sinners sin. Doesn't surprise me when people sin. Now, some people are more disappointed when they sin, including myself, but I'm a sinner, I'm going to sin. Everybody I know is a sinner and they're going to sin. And so I cannot be surprised when they sin because that is their nature. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you don't believe in the Son, you are already condemned. Not, you know, so it takes going to him to get no condemnation. Other than that, we are condemned. The moment that person, that individual is born, they're condemned. They're condemned to hell the moment they're born without making that decision of, toward Christ. So he's coming in here and he says, he that hath not believed uh, in the name, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, he's hammering on this to Nicodemus that God has a Son that is now here to redeem the world. He has the sacrifice. And this is given to a man who's used to a sacrifice. He's used to making these sacrifices at least three times a year, and, and he's a Pharisee, so I'm sure he's making a lot more burnt offerings than just the three times a year. And he's hearing that now God is going to make a sacrifice. God is giving a son, has a son, and he's going to give him. And he's thinking back to Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, which is where they're standing at that moment, on Mount, Mor Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. And he's thinking back to there's going to be a sacrifice that God has provided, just as he said, just as Abraham said that he would. And all these things are starting to kick in. He knows his Bible well. And so when he's hearing some of these things, he's hearing something very different than, than we as Gentiles or those who don't know the Bible hear. He's thinking back, you know, oh, you talked about the, the serpent on the, you know, being raised up. You're talking about the sacrifice of an only begotten son, and he's going to remember Mount Moriah and, and Abraham, he's going to remember all the other stories where God has offered a sacrifice, had a sacrifice to, to redeem his people and that, that sacrifice brings no condemnation because God brings a revival from people turning to him. So he's piecing all these things together and starting to get a new paradigm in his, in his mind or a new way of thinking. So he's hearing these things and he's going, these aren't the way I've always thought. But as he goes through the scriptures and the stories, he's going to go, this makes sense. Because he knows the scripture. He knows it well. And he's now getting a new way of interpreting these scriptures that has never been given to him. Now, you've got to put yourself in his play, mindset as well. Here is a young man, a rabbi at, at this point. So he's 30 years old or 31 years old. I think he's only about 30 years old. He seems to be early in this. He is over 30 years old. He's been teaching for a long time. And here's this young, young man giving him things that he has never even thought or considered. Now, we can also go back to Luke's story of Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. What did it say? They were amazed at his understanding as he was asking questions and teaching them uh, what, the, what the scripture said. And they were amazed. Here's Nicodemus a teacher of teachers, basically. He's a master. He's, he's been trained for a long time. He's, and he's hearing things that he has never heard before from this young guy. 
Uh, he could have gotten all insulted, you know, hey, who do you think you are teaching, teaching me? I'm, uh, I'm your elder, you're supposed to respect me, and now you're, you're giving me these instructions. But I think he was impressed at the same time. Here is somebody teaching something that I have never thought of. And he's doing it, and he's, and he's comparing scriptures and saying, they match up. They, they make sense. And so he's saying they're not condemned. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation. So he goes, in case you don't understand what the condemnation is, here, here, here it is. The light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So he's saying the problem that they have is they're rejecting the light. And we've talked about this on several occasions. Jesus came to reveal God's love to man and give light. We sometimes will bring the light into, some, into somebody's life, and what happens when they don't like the light that they're seeing? Oh, boy. We get criticized. We get, we get attacked. We get Because the world does not like light. Because it reveals who they are. And you know, for, even for us, how hard is it sometimes when God shines his light a little deeper into our heart and we start really seeing who we are and realizing we, we've got to clean up something a little deeper? Because we can get complacent sometimes and think, you know, hey, God, I, I've got my life put together. I'm not really that bad. And then God shines the light down in there and says, oh, okay, you think you're, you think you're okay? Here, here, I want you to get uh, this stuff out of your heart as well. And then when we think we've got that taken care of and we go, okay, I, I've got it now, he'll shine a little brighter light or a little deeper down and saying, uh, now we've got to get this stuff out of your heart. And I think that's going to be something we're going to face the rest of our lives, facing a little more bright light as he kicks up the wattage of the light that he shines in our heart. Uh, and I've said this many times, if you're in a room and you have a candle on, you don't see how dusty and dirty the room is. You, you put a 20-watt bulb in, and it doesn't look really good, so you clean it up. And then you put a 100-watt light bulb in, and it really looks bad. And you, if you were to get a big, you know, uh, million-power candle uh, flashlight and shine it in there, you're going, oh, turn that thing off. I don't want to see how dirty it is. God does that to us. <laughs> okay, here's your little candle. Okay, now let's put a light bulb on. Let's put a, let's put a, a lighthouse, lighthouse on you. <laughs> uh, and we see how dirty our lives are. Paul said at the end of his life, he says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Now, if you read, uh, read in the commentaries, most every one of them think, will say that he was referring back to when he got saved and had murdered Christians and all of that. I don't buy that. I think he literally was saying, God is showing me how awful my heart is, even though I've come so far. And that's how I've experienced things over the years. I've come so far in so many areas and God still shines a light and going, God, will I ever get to the end of this sin down there in that heart? You keep showing me new areas to have to work on. And the answer is no, not until we get glorified when we die or get raptured and we get our new glorified body where the sin nature is completely removed. I think he'll continue showing because... The, Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? And that includes us Christians. God will continue to shine down there and say, uh, don't get too complacent. Don't get too proud. You're, you still have a lot of problems down there that I want you to kick out. And it's always been amazing to me that what God de declares is the worst sins. Lying lips, you know, lips that spread gossip, you know, the, the seven things God hates in Proverbs. You know, and what would we name if we were going to pick the worst sins? Murder, uh, you know, rape, uh, incest. You know, we we put these what we consider big sins, and God says no. These things that hurt the soul are a bigger deal to Him than these things that hurt the flesh. Now, I'm not saying they're good, but I'm just saying from God's perspective, He He's more angry about the harm to the soul than He is to the flesh. And you know, we, we used to teach, and I, my, kid, my parents taught me, you know, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. What a big lie. You know, what a big lie. Words hurt more well, and have a longer duration. Let's put it that way. They have a longer duration. The broken bones hurt more when, when they happen, but the duration is the bones heal in six weeks. 
uh, cut will heal very quick, but those words can hurt for the rest of your life. And God understands that, and that's why he hates little things that cause pain to the soul. And we need to understand, because usually those are the last things we think about getting rid of in our life. God, okay, I want to get rid of it. I'm not going to steal anymore. I'm not going to lust anymore. I'm not going to do these things. And God says, yeah, now, what about all the negative things you say? What about all the gossip you're sp- spreading? The, the van, you're using my name in vain and all these things that happen. God hates those more because, number one, they're deep into our soul. We don't think they're that bad, so we don't give them up real, real easily. And so he says, we're condemned because we're evil. And when, because we're evil, we don't want the light. When you flip on a light, if there's roaches or rats or anything in a, you know, in a, in a building, you turn on the light, they scatter. You know, the evil does not like the light because it wants to stay hidden. And God says, I'm going to shine the light on the evil. And we as Christians are a light. Jesus said we are a light to the world. And you know, a candle that is, you know, that is lit does not put under a bushel, but put on a candlestick. And I've had this happen more times than not. I don't even have to say anything sometimes. I walk into a group and people will feel guilty because God comes in with me and they feel, they feel the guilt because the light is shining on them. And they realize, and I don't even have to say a word, and heaven help me if I say a word. You know, uh, and, and being a pastor, it's just automatic. You know, people say, well, got to stop doing this. Pastor's in the, you know. It's like, I don't care what you do. And I, I hear this a lot even at work because they know I'm a pastor. Well, got to watch what I'm saying. A pastor's here. And I'm going, you know what? God hears you all the time. And he's the one that you're, you should care about. I don't care what you say. God cares what you say, not me. And they need to understand that because we do bring God's presence in and it does bother people. It bothers a lot of people when God's presence walks in and they know that they are evil and they don't like the light. They don't like the presence of God in their, in their brought into them. And the thing about us as Christians, we bring God's presence everywhere we go. Now, his presence may not shine as brightly as it should sometimes because of our problems and attitudes. But you know, when we're following him, we're in God's word, we're in fellowship with him, his light shines bright. And I don't know how many of you have experienced this, but I've experienced it many times where I just see somebody and I know they're a Christian. The spirit is just shining out of them so much that I know that I know that they're a Christian. And I'll go talk to them and find out, sure enough, they're a Christian and that they're in fellowship with God and that they're enjoying God and they're, and they're wanting to share with God as well, uh, share God with others as well. And I can't say I'm always like that, but oftentimes I know that I do. You know, and the, the, when we come in with joy in our heart and peace and contentment, and it shines out because there's a smile on our face. And I really truly believe that the more we are in fellowship with God, the more he's going to sh- literally shine out of us going back to when Moses comes off the mountain with 40 days in front, in front of God, he said he literally shone. All right, he, His face shone, and he needed then to be able to get back with God and fellowship with him so that his face could still shy, show forth God. And we have him in us, and the more that we're in fellowship with him, the more he will shine out of us and be able to basically irritate people. <laughs> Or, or bless people, depending on which way they're, which way they're sitting. But he says, uh, men love darkness because their deeds are evil. When you start quoting the Bible, you start bringing God's presence into them, people start getting their conscience kicked in. Even if they don't believe it's wrong, deep down they know things are wrong. And this is something I've said so many times. You know, People go, well... You know, I just don't believe in truth. I go, yes, you do. You just, you're, you just tried to sear it. I go, you, do you want people lying? Oh, no, that's wrong. You just told me there's no such thing as, thing as right and wrong. Well, that's wrong. Oh, okay, somebody murders you. Well, that's wrong. You just said there's no right or wrong. But deep down, people know right and wrong instinctively because the conscience is put deep into our being, into our soul. Now, we may sear, their, sear our conscience and, and bury that conscience, but it doesn't take much 
for God to touch that conscience and say, uh, by the way, you still have a conscience in there. Uh, and people, and even if we are doing something wrong and we read it in the scriptures, all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that's a, that's a soft tender spot. I don't, I, don't, I don't want that to be, I thought that was okay. And God says, no, I want you to change it because I'm telling you it's wrong. And sin tries to stay hidden. And it, and it needs that light. Verse 20 says, For everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So he's saying those who are evil do not want to even come into the light. This is why it is very hard sometimes to get people to come to church. All right? Because they're going, well, if I go to church, they might say something, that God may say something that is going to shine a light on me. Which is why we have to go out into the world and minister, pass out tracts, minister to people, catch them off guard a little bit, bring the light into their life when they don't want it. Because trying to get them into church can be really tough. Because they might just hear something that says, this is sin. This is what God wants. God loves you. Do you realize the power of just that statement to a lot of these people? God loves you to the lost world. Because they don't think God loves them. Matter of fact, many of them are convinced that God doesn't love them. Now, there's no way God, if God, you know, you don't know what I have done, so you don't, can't, don't tell me that God loves me. God loves you so much, he sent his only begotten son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. Now, they may not hear it, they may not really understand it, but they need to understand that the simple statement, God loves you, can impact people. Now, it may irritate them as well, but it will impact them. And they will be thinking, does God really love me in spite of what I've done? You know, and this is why we just speak the truth. We don't have to try to convince anybody of anything. Uh, when I witness to people, I used to, especially when I was in the college, and I'd start witnessing, and I'd quote a Bible verse, and they'll go, well, I don't believe in the Bible. I go, I understand. And I'll quote them another Bible verse. I told you I don't believe in the Bible verse. I understand, but I'm giving them another Bible verse. Why? Because God says his word does not return void. And his word is going to be more convicting than anything that I could possibly say. Because then the Holy Spirit will start working on their heart. Something along, something along the lines of they'll be thinking, I wonder if that stupid fool really, really knows anything. I wonder if what they said is really true. And start contemplating. And when we give them the word on how to be saved and, and, and the, that God loves them, it gives them something to think about. So our job is real simple. We just give them truth. Even if they don't want to hear truth, we give them truth. And it may irritate them at the moment, and that's fine and dandy. If they get irritated, they get irritated. But they have the truth to be working on. And I know they're going to get irritated because God said they're going to get irritated. I just put a big spotlight on their, on their, on their life gave them the answer on how to get, get out from under it, but they're going to have to choose. Are they going to hide from the light? Or are they going to come into the light and seek forgiveness? And this is what's going on. And he goes, He that doth truth comes to the light that his deeds may be made manifest for they are that they are wrought in God. So if they're doing things that are truthful and right, they're going to run to the light. They're going to run to the light because they want to be seen. They want to, they don't mind being seen by the light. And the more we, the more we follow God, the more we're in love with him, and the more we understand we're not in condemnation, when the light shines on us, yes, it may hurt to see some of the sin in our life, but then we run to the light and say, God, thank you that you've died for this sin, and thank you, and help me get rid of it. And our goal as Christians should be to run to the light, not hide from the light. Uh, there was a song long ago, which none of you know because a band wrote, wrote it that I listened to, but they had uh, run to the light and was, was the, f the frame on it. That when, you, when God shines his light, run to, the, run to the light. And we need to be careful that our desire, because our sinful nature is going to want to run from the light. But God is saying, you're mine, you're, you're, not without, you're without condemnation, come to the light put on Christ and be forgiven and seen and get over the sin and let me deliver you. And 
the longer we run from the light, the more we're going to be bound by that sin and, and suffer, especially once the light has shone on it and we know that it's there. Uh, I've had times in my life when the light has shone on me, go, God, I'm not ready to give this up. And, and from that point on, any pleasure that used to be there is gone. Because I know that God is telling me to get rid of it. And it's like, oh, God, you, ru you ruined that part of my life. Now, I gotta, now I've got to fight to do it. And it's no longer fun. And you eventually, at least I have, eventually give up and say, okay, God, it's yours. Yeah, it's no longer fun. It's no longer good. You, you shown the light on it. Take it. But if we, the longer we fight on it, the harder it gets. And the more we want to stay away from the light. And this is what happens to us when we start falling away from God in a backslidden state. We go, ah, well, I just don't feel like God loves me, and I'm not going to go around all those people who are going to tell me that God loves me and, and shine the lights all over me because I'm not, ready to hear, I'm not ready to see the light. And we start pulling away from the light. And I can see it. I've seen it many times over the years where somebody very active in church, and then they start missing and missing and missing and missing. And before long, it's like, where did they go? Well, sometimes they went to a different church uh, because that church isn't shining as bright a light on it or doesn't know them as well to shine the light on them yet. And, and I've met many people that are church hoppers. Every three, four years, they decide, I'm going to go to a different church because this one has started, this pastor starting to shine a light on my life that I don't like. He said something that really bugged me because the light shone on me, and they'll go to another church. And we have a couple people every Every uh, four or five years, they come back, and they stick around for about a year or two, and then they disappear. <laughs> and then they'll come back again a few years later when some other churches stepped on their toes a little bit too much. Yeah. The problem with that is we need to be able to be challenged. I listen to pastors all the time that step on my toes, and I'm wondering how God always arranges for them to know exactly what I need to hear. And yet they do. And I still love those, love those pastors, you know, even though my toes are being stepped on. Why? Because I know God is shining a light in my life that I need to change. And, you know, if we always just disappear when our toes, you know, toes or the light shined on us, we're never going to grow. We're never going to grow because we're avoiding the light. And this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. Those who do good come to the light. So at this point, Nicodemus has a challenge in front of him. Nicodemus... Are you going to run from the light? Are you going to recognize that your inner heart and soul is evil and you're going to run from the light? Or are you going to come to the light? And the hard thing here is we don't see what Nicodemus chooses at this point. We don't know if he walked away a believer or if he had to struggle with this. Now we do know by the time Jesus dies, Nicodemus is a believer because he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to get the body of Jesus and bury it. So we know that by the end, he is a believer. And we believe that he's a believer when he defends Jesus and you, we don't kill somebody without a, without a trial. Now that just may have been his righteous indignation or he was a believer, a believer following Jesus quietly. We don't know, but we do know by that last reference to him that he was a believer. He went out and helped to bury the body of Jesus. But we're left here with did he or didn't he? And I think that's done on purpose. It's here to tell us that when we give a gospel message, we are not responsible for the reaction to it. And I think this is what was being shown here. Jesus was not saying, every time I talked to somebody, they got saved. And Because we know for a fact, a lot of people did not get saved when Jesus talked to them, which should encourage us as Christians when we witness. If people didn't listen to Jesus... Why do we expect them to always listen to us? Because I've had people go, well, nobody ever listens to me, so I am not witnessing. <laughs> Jesus could have said the same thing. You know, I had these people, and they didn't listen. I'm going to quit witnessing to the world. I'm not going to tell them about me anymore because nobody's listening, or, or very few are listening. And we need to keep that in mind. Our job is not to be responsible for what people do with the message. Our job is to give the message. And then people are responsible for what they do with that message. Not what I expect them to do, not what I want them to do even. My, my goal, I agree with God, I want everybody to be saved. I wish everybody when I spoke to the gospel message to them immediately jumped up and said, yes, I want him. <laughs> Doesn't happen. 
It doesn't happen, and it's a very small percentage of the people, at least for me. Now, I've gone out with evangelists who seem to get lots and lots of people saved. That's their, their special gift. But I just stay faithful to share the gospel and see what happens and, and watch what God is going to do. All right. Lord, we ask you to bless us, us as we go forward and about your business. Help us to find opportunities to share you and let our light shine brightly so that people will be drawn to you because of what they see. And we just thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.